0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. He is risen. He is risen That's right. And you know, you know it must be an important day because I'm up here wearing a sports jacket. <laughs> Hadn't done this since last Easter. And hey, doesn't this all look great? thank you guys. So many people uh, fed us breakfast and helped make this place look great. You know, it's like I say, the best I can do is talk about it, but talk is cheap. A lot of you guys put a lot of work into showing us that today is a big day. So let's get out our Bibles. Let's turn to Matthew 28. We're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, You know, the resurrection, I think, is a funny thing, uh, especially to us today. I'm absolutely convinced that if you know, our church growth gurus and our, our branding experts and our, uh, our marketing consultants, if they all lived in Jesus's time and they were consulting with Jesus before this happened, they'd say, Jesus, don't do it. Everybody's going to think it's weird. People aren't going to believe it. You're, listen, if you want to start a new religion, if you want it to spread all over the world, listen, just, just give some people, you know, some tips on how to manage their life a little bit better. Don't go do something crazy like this. And from the time it happened all the way to today, listen, there's always been plenty of people who agree with the teachings of Jesus, who even like the Christian morality, but for them, the resurrection is just a stumbling block. It is something they simply refuse to believe. And yet, and yet, from the beginning, the disciples were all willing to die for it, to say that it was true. Paul, maybe the greatest theologian the world's ever known. He said, if this didn't happen, take everything I wrote and just throw it in the trash can. It's worthless. It's a waste of your time. So what, what many find impossible to believe, Christians find impossible to believe without. But you know, I understand. I understand people's skepticism because we're all taught, you all know the saying, if something sounds too good to be true, it, it probably is. what we celebrate today, the resurrection, it invites us to rethink that stance. It invites us to ask if if God can and did do something beyond our understanding, beyond our power, something that has never happened before in the world. I was floored by a song I listened to this week. It's by a Christian artist named Jess Ray. She writes great songs The chorus said this, It may be too good to be understood, but it's not too good to be true. It may be too good to be understood, but it is not too good to be true. So it is with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's read about the account. We'll be in Matthew 28. It's one of the shorter accounts. We're going to see it through the eyes of two women, two Marys. We're going to look at the event, the message, and then the implications Let's read together. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, to the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled the stone back and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you come to seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with great fear and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So we find out about this unexpected event that happens. Matthew starts in an odd way, though. He says this happened toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Now, that's a weird way to say that. He could have said on the third day. That's how many writers say it. He could have said the next morning. He could have just said on Sunday. But no, he says the dawn of the first day. Why does he say it that way? Well, he's trying to communicate what that video we watched was all about. He's signaling a new day is dawned. Something has changed forever. See, Saturday, the day Jesus was in the tomb, was a day of darkness. But this day, night's over. The sun is rising and the light has dawned. This is language like Genesis 1 before creation, where it says, Darkness was over the face of the deep. And then what happened? Then God said, Let there be light. And that was the first day in history. Matthew is saying, "This This is like that. Now a new history begins. And up walk the two Marys to visit the tomb. Now, why are they coming? Mark's gospel tells us they're coming with spices and oils. See, they didn't have all the embalming processes that we do now before someone was laid in the tomb. And so after death, they would have to come treat the body with these spices. And so they're coming and all they expect to find is a corpse. They are coming to grieve and to mourn. That is all that is on their mind. It's important for us to know who these women are to sum it all up, they, they are nobodies from nowhere. They've got the most common name for a, a Jewish woman in all of Israel, just two Marys. Now, these are not the people that you would send if you wanted to, you know, start your new religion with some. You're trying to build some kind of conspiracy and, and make sure it gets off on the right foot because y'all, these two women, they could not provide testimony in court. They had no legal standing. If this was a conspiracy you'd send Peter and John, they're, they're the ones who would be the most credible. We're told one of them is Mary Magdalene. She's called Mary Magdalene because she's from the town of Magdala. It's a little, little fishing village in northern Galilee. I think of a, a small industrial town. Kind of impoverished. It's a rough town. In fact, future historians will say that the downfall of Magdala was due to their promiscuity and their immorality. It's the kind of place that even if you're from there, you don't claim it. You claim to be from the next bigger city over. That's where you're really from. Most historians agree that Mary, like almost every single woman from that town, was an innkeeper, which is just code for a prostitute. And to make it worse, at one point in her life, she's possessed by seven demons. Now, I'm going to assume none of y'all have been possessed by seven demons before. So let me just tell you what that was like back then. So, not only were you tormented all the time, but you were alone, you were untouchable and isolated. Y'all, this is a woman that quite literally has experienced the darkness of hell itself. She's a picture. She's a living, breathing, walking picture of Genesis 1 where darkness hovers over everything. And then Jesus happened. Jesus came and he healed her. Now, throughout the Gospels, all kinds of people come seeking Jesus and come find Jesus. Blind people, lame people, poor people, people whose loved ones are dying. But did you know not once, not once in all the Gospels... Does someone who's possessed by demons go find Jesus? Every single time Jesus finds them. Jesus seeks them out. And that's what he did with Mary. He went and he found her and he healed her. He made light dawn into her darkness. But now that Jesus is dead. Imagine, imagine what must be going through her mind, through her heart. How is this possible? How can this man who delivered me from evil, himself be killed by that same evil. She must have thought all hope is lost. And by the way, where are the disciples? Where are they? What are they doing? You know, this is another one of those things that tells me this could not be some conspiracy to fake the resurrection. And they're all working together because when Jesus was crucified, they hide, lied, and denied. That's all they did. They are scared and they are scattered. Even Matthew, think about this. Matthew is writing this gospel. He is writing this account. And if he was just making something up, you know what he'd have done? He'd have made himself the hero. He'd have said, it was me. Guys, I knew it the whole time. I knew Jesus was going to rise again. And so I was there waiting by the tomb, you know, just waiting for him to show up. I'm the hero. I'm the one that found him. But if he'd written that, everyone would have known that's that's not the truth. And so he had to write it as it actually happened. He was one of those disciples run scared. Y'all, really? Right now, Matthew, he's just trying to figure out what he's going to do with his life now that Jesus is dead. That's all he's doing. So we have disciples who are MIA. We have two nobodies from nowhere coming to mourn. And then they see this angel. And this angel has a message for them. So first the earth shakes. This angel appears. He rolls back the stone. We're told this angel, he looks like lightning. And then verse four, y'all, is probably my favorite part. So we have the guards, and these are elite, special forces. The governor himself had sent them to guard this tomb. These are professional killers, bad mamma jammers. And when this goes down, the best they can do is like, I don't feel so good. Splat. They're done. They don't even get to draw their swords. I want us to notice something. Notice the angel didn't just roll away the stone. What did the angel do after it rolled away the stone? He sat on top of it. That is the clearest picture we can get for the fact that Jesus is conquering death once and for all. Anybody want to try to roll that stone back with Mr. Lightning sitting on top? It's not going to go well for you. That stone will never be put back. And then the angel speaks, essentially tells the two Marys, hey, you've come looking for Jesus. We're on the same team. Hey, remember when he said he would rise again? That wasn't a metaphor. It's happened. And then the angel commands Mary, the Mary's three things. First, the angel tells them, do not be afraid. Right. Anyone going to not be afraid in that moment? I mean, what is happening is totally unexpected. It's never happened in the world before. It's overwhelming. They're right to be overwhelmed. But in the middle of that, and then we're told, even after this, they, they run away with great joy and still great fear. Y'all, they are feeling all of the feelings right now, as you would be. And into that, the angel says, Do not be afraid. Now, the angel doesn't mean act like this is totally normal. This is not normal. The angel, what the angel is saying, yes, this is overwhelming, but it's safe, but it's good. God has done something too good to be understood but not too good to be true. Always reminds me of one of my favorite scenes from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Lucy is going to meet Aslan the lion for the first time and she asks a very legitimate question when you're going to meet a lion. Is he safe? That's what I would want to know. So Mr. Beaver replies, (laughs) safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's good. The angel saying, listen, what's what's happening here is way bigger than you. It is unbelievable, but you don't have to be afraid. God is showing his goodness to you. And I think this is one of the reasons God picked Mary to be the one to find him. Because she, listen, she would trust his goodness in the face of something she couldn't understand. She knew, she knew what it was like to be possessed by the worst forces of evil and to need something bigger than her, something more powerful, maybe that she can't even comprehend, but that loves her and will pursue her and will work for her good. She knows how to trust Jesus in those moments. Next the angel tells her, come and see. Come and see, Mary's. Think about this. Why did the angel roll the stone away? Was Jesus like stuck inside risen, but just waiting on the angel to open the door for him. No, no, no. By the time they show up, Jesus is already gone. And so the angel isn't rolling away the tomb to let him out. It's to let us in, to let us come and see. It's an invitation from the angel. Hey, come with your questions. Come with your doubts. Come with all the feelings. Come even with your sin. The angel invites Invites them to walk past the guards that are passed out and in to that very tomb that used to hold death itself. See, this, this isn't a just take it for my word kind of deal. Come touch it. See it for yourself. Because the angel knows, the angel knows if you are going to live your life as if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to know for yourself it's true. You can't just take somebody else's word for it. And so then the angel says, go and tell. Go and tell. And so these Marys become the first people to ever share the gospel. Augustine called Mary Magdalene the apostle to the apostles. Every other apostle found out about what Jesus had done through her. Now, again, this seems like a bad plan if you're going to start a new religion. Two poor nobodies from nowhere don't seem like they should be capable of spreading the gospel across the earth. I mean, how about the angel? The angel's right there. I'm pretty sure if Mr. Lightning goes and tells everybody they're going to listen to him. That's not what happened. Think about this. Remember, Matthew called it the dawn of a new day. Well, how does it move from dawn to afternoon? From just a sliver of light on the horizon to a sky full of light. Just two nobodies from nowhere go tell people about Jesus. And then... Fast forward a few thousand years, and here we sit right here. Isn't that amazing? And if they can do it, so can we. And they don't just go, they run. They are sprinting to go and tell. But on their way, they get a very important interruption. Verse 9, they're on the way, they're running, and then there he is, Jesus. The one they saw crucified, dead, buried, and there he is right in front of them living, breathing, talking to them. And he says, greetings. That word there, it means joy. Rejoice, take pleasure in. We see this word all over the place when Jesus first arrives on on the scene, at his birth. So Luke chapter 2, when the angels tell the shepherds, hey, I've got good news of great joy. It's the same word. Matthew 2, the wise men When it says they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. That's the same word. And now that word shows up at the sight of the risen Jesus. This is truly good news of great joy for them. And then they do this thing that may seem odd to us. They grab his feet and they worship. Now, y'all know no Jewish person would have done this to a mere human being. They are identifying him as God. Now, why do they grab his feet? They're not trying to trip him. Okay, this, this is an act. It meant something. Back then, to grab someone's feet was to express your utter desperate need for them. It's saying, I'm so little, and you are so big, and I need you. See, worship happens. Worship happens when we reach an end to ourselves, and we come face-to-face with something bigger. When heaven invades our world, and we are face-to-face with something greater than ourselves, and it holds us in awe. It holds us in worship. And then Jesus repeats two of the three instructions. He doesn't have to to say, come and see, because they're there at His feet. But then He repeats, don't be afraid, go and tell. Which begs the question, why did He stop them to begin with? That's what they were doing. They were on their way. And He didn't give them different instructions. He didn't stop them. He He just repeated it. So why why is that here? I think what Matthew is showing us is that everything we do, everything we do in light of the resurrection is worship. That's all we can do. You see, men and women, Christianity, it's more than just information. It's more than just a set of facts to believe and digest. It is a relationship of worship with a person and I know, I know it's possible to go to church for a long time and never figure that out, but that's what Matthew is showing us here. And that means the Christian life, it's not just rules and duty and regulations. It is a worshipful response to beholding Jesus. That's all we do around here. So it's not saying, I guess I should do this. It's saying, he is so beautiful, I can't resist. See, all, all we can do as humans All we can do is respond appropriately to all he has done. That's all we can do. And so what is, I ask you, what is the only appropriate response to your creator dying for you and then raising again? Worship. Fall at his feet in worship. That's the only appropriate response. You know, I think these, these three commands from the angel and from Jesus, I think They still ring out to us today. This is what the risen Jesus is saying to you and I today. Number one, he says to you this morning do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. You know, fear is mentioned four times in these 10 verses. And I think that makes it very applicable today because we live in an age of fear and anxiety, don't we? People are so afraid. We're afraid of not having enough. We're afraid of losing what we have. We're afraid of the future. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid of rejection. You know, psychologists say, really, all of us only have five fears. You can take every fear, every phobia, and it fits into one of five categories. So number one, we're afraid of death. So if you say, like me, you're afraid of heights, really, you're not afraid of the height. You're afraid of the splat down below. Second, we're afraid of mutilation, which all makes me uncomfortable just saying it. That sounds horrible. We're afraid of abandonment. That's why we fear rejection. Fourth, we're afraid of loss of bodily autonomy. That's why we fear losing control. That's why we fear the future sometimes. Finally, we're all afraid of humiliation. That's why one of the most common fears is what I'm doing right now, public speaking, We don't want to embarrass ourselves or humiliate ourselves. And I can testify that does happen from time to time. My guess is, as I've been reading that list, my guess is one, maybe two of those. Man, you felt right here. I mean, you felt it in your gut. You know that fear. Whatever it is, here's what I want you to know this morning. Jesus went through that fear. Jesus went through that fear. Think about it. In his death and resurrection, he experienced all of these. He was humiliated. They covered his face and they punched him in the face. And they said, "Ha ha ha, if you're really a prophet, prophesy who punched you." Then they stripped him naked and they paraded him through the streets. He lost all autonomy. He couldn't even breathe, which is how you usually died in a crucifixion. You suffocated. He was abandoned. Abandoned by his disciples, even worse, abandoned by God the Father. As he hung on his cross, he shouted, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was mutilated. Before the crucifixion, he was whipped. It would have been a cat with nine tails, is what they called it. At the end, it had all kind of pieces of glass and stone that as they pulled it away would rip the skin off. In fact, most people didn't even survive the whipping to make it to the crucifixion. And then, most tragic of all, the creator himself died, experienced death. Now, if that's the end of the story, the message from the angel is, oh yeah, be afraid. You should all be afraid because even God himself cannot escape these things. But the resurrection changes everything because it means Jesus didn't just experience it, he overcame it. He conquered even death. The resurrection shows that he is Christ, the great victor. That's what Paul Paul wrote over and over again, that the resurrection is the ultimate conquering act of God, where he defeated all the powers, all the principalities that are too big for us. He writes in Colossians 2, he says, he, that's Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Triumphing over them. So they're the ones that ought to fear humiliation because Jesus triumphed over them. 1 Corinthians 15, he writes, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So for you and I this morning, listen the cure for all your fears, the cure for all your anxieties is not to change some circumstances. The cure is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He is Christ, the great victor, because he has made all things new and then he invites you to be a part of it. And so there is nothing left the world or any other principalities or powers can do to us. There's nothing left to fear, even death itself. So do not be afraid. But also Jesus invites you this morning to come and see. Come and see for yourself. He means means that in two different ways. Number one, historically. Because listen, I know probably in this room, because throughout history there have been plenty of people who see the resurrection as a good story with some good moral lessons, but hey, let's not get out of hand and say it actually happened. The problem is Christianity has claimed it actually happened since the day it actually happened. John Updike is a famous poet. One of his early poems before really he got famous was called Seven Stanzas at Easter. He writes this, make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. And then he adds, let us not mock God with metaphor. Tish Harrison warns a current Christian writer I really enjoy. She said this, whatever else Christianity is, it is an assertion of historic fact. Now, it would be so much more acceptable if Easter were merely a ritual, communicating religious ideals, teaching us to cultivate the better angels of our nature. But if Easter is only an abstraction, it doesn't mean much to me. I'm with the Apostle Paul who wrote and the billions of Christians around the world who profess, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Christianity claims that Jesus actually rose from the dead. But then you know what Jesus does? He invites you to come and see for yourself. Test the claims of Christianity. Don't just ignore it. Don't just write it off. Don't just walk past. No, no, no. Come and see. But as you do, Understand, he means come and see, not just historically, but also relationally. You have to know not just that it happened, but on some level, it is for you. On some level, it changes you. On some level, Jesus says to you this morning, just like he said to Mary, rejoice, take great pleasure in this. And You may, you may say, no, why would something that happened 2,000 years ago cause me to rejoice today? Well, that same writer, Tish Harrison Warren, continues. She says this, Yet believing that Jesus is risen is different than believing that Napoleon invaded Russia or that Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Christians believe that because Jesus is risen, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. The historical event leaps out of history and into the present tense. See, when Jesus rose, he wasn't just acting against other forces out there. He was acting to change you. Romans 5 puts it this way. His death paid for your sins. It gives you forgiveness for sins. But his life gives you a new relationship with him. And here's why you can rejoice in that. Because that means, men and women, that God doesn't just love some future better version of yourself. That if you can act right and fly straight, if you can get yourself together and find your way to him, you can have a relationship with him. No, no. The resurrection says that God has already done everything required for you to have a relationship with him. Classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, has this great scene in it where Christian, he goes and encounters an old foe he's very familiar with, death. And him and death have a conversation. But this time, this time, something is different the Christian says, hello, death, my old enemy, my old slave master. Have you come to talk to me again, to frighten me? I'm not the person you think I am. I'm not the one you used to talk to. Something has happened. So let me ask you a question, death. Where is your sting? Death sneers at him and says, my sting is your sin. And Christian just responds, I know that, death, but that's not what I asked you. I asked, where is your sting? I know what it is, but tell me, where is it? Why are you fidgeting, death? Why are you looking away? Why are you turning to go? Wait, death, you have not answered my question. Where is your sting? Where is my sin? What, you, you have no answer? But death, why do you have no answer? How will you terrify me if you have no answer? Oh, death, I will tell you the answer. Where is your sting? Where is my sin? It is hanging on that tree. God made Christ to be sin, my sin. When he died, the penalty of my sin was paid. The power of it was broken, and I bear it no more. So farewell, death. You need not show up here again to frighten me. God will tell you when to come the next time. And when you come, you will be his servant. For me, you'll have no sting. Men and women, come and see. It means he wants a relationship with you today. And he conquered even sin and death to make it happen. But as you come and see, when you come and see Jesus for yourself, understand this. it will change you. So God says to you today, go and tell. Go and tell. Frederick Buechner said, faith is a word that describes the direction our feet start moving when we find we are loved. And that's true of everyone who experienced the resurrection of Jesus in the gospel. Everyone in the story changed the trajectory of their lives based on the resurrection. I think about the Mary's You know, I love the picture of of them two sprinting to go and tell. I think this is another reason God chose them to find it, because if it had been two dudes, two guys, they'd have been running just because everything's a competition and I got to win. In fact, y'all, that's what happened So the Gospel of John. John records him and Peter running to tell somebody, and he writes down for all of history, hey, just so we're clear, I won. I beat Peter there. That's not why the Marys are running They are running because they can't wait to tell people about Jesus. But then also think about those disciples. Almost every one of them was martyred. And all they had to do to stop it was stop telling people about Jesus. That's all they had to do. Think about Andrew, disciple Andrew. He was crucified himself. And church history tells us it took him two days to die. He suffered on a cross for two days. You know how he spent those two days? Preaching the gospel. He preached the gospel for two days as he died on a cross. See, For them, going and telling, it was not a a duty. It was a privilege. It was worship. You know, God gives me a glimpse of this. Every year, every year about this time, when we go and do Easter egg hunts with our kids, And not as much now, they're getting a little older, but especially when they were younger. You know, we'd get home and they'd dump all those eggs out and they'd sit in my lap and then one by one, they'd open each egg and they'd tell me about what they got. Oh, look, daddy, daddy, this one's got Skittles. Look, this one's got an eraser. Oh, look, this this one's got a Jolly Rancher in it. And we'd go through every single one of those eggs. But you know what? In those moments, they had nowhere else to be. They had nothing better to do. You know what? They didn't need a, some kind of strategy to tell me about it. They didn't need someone, you know, with the spiritual gift of talking about Easter eggs to come tell me. No. In that moment, the delight of their life was to tell the person they loved about the gift they received. So what about you this morning? Listen, I can, I can promise you. There's, there's not much I can promise. I can promise you this. You will never live with more joy or more purpose when you use, than when you use your, your words, your abilities, your time, your talents to go and tell people about the gift you have received. So in closing, I, I want you to just, I want everyone to take a moment to consider something. Just consider this, if, as, as we're talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection, if, if all of a sudden in this moment it's, it's starting to make sense to you, or it's even attractive to you, I want you to consider this. It's not me. It's not any of the words I'm saying. Maybe, just maybe, the risen Jesus Christ is still alive today, and He is drawing you to Himself, and He is speaking to your heart, and He wants a relationship with you. And maybe it's to not be afraid, to know that you can trust him. Or maybe it's to to come and see, come and see maybe for the first time that he wants a relationship with you. And listen, if that's you, we would love to talk to you after the service. Or maybe it's to, to let the resurrection change how you live today. Because you're realizing all of a sudden, you know what? My life is about something far bigger than me. Whatever it is, Whatever it is, the risen Lord is talking to you this morning. Here's my best advice. Be like the Mary's. Run to it. Run and then fall at his feet and worship. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.